Hi, I'm Alex Terranova, and welcome to season one of the Trailblazers of Coaching, a group of what we might call the founders of the coaching profession. Our goal, to introduce you to some of the leaders of this rapidly growing industry and to provide history, advice, training, and some humor for all the future Trailblazers of Coaching. Your host in season one is Christopher McCullough, master certified coach, founder of Accomplishment Coaching, and a leader in the field since 1996. Joining Christopher in season one are Rich Maxwell, a professional certified coach and leader in the field since 1996. Dr. Don R. Booz, an author, professional certified coach, master practitioner in neuro-linguistic programming with a background in marriage and family therapy. Larry Williamson, a master certified coach and author, and Dr. Patrick Williams, an author, speaker, master certified coach, and psychologist turned executive coach. Welcome to the Trailblazers of Coaching. Chapter five, cultural, sexual, and racial awareness. Talking about uh, being a bunch of white, cisgendered, heterosexual men of a certain socioeconomic bracket and how we're actually second citizens in the coaching world because it was mostly women are doing dominating for most of the time that we were coming up. But now, certainly, we don't represent the broad spectrum of the human experience on this planet, right? Right. What do you, what do you notice? Just, just where do you want to start the conversation? Are you noticing that you're limited in your cultural awareness, that you don't have any really good hip-hop references or... <laughs> Culture is so complex and uh, so varied as you look across the world, much less, I mean, just across our country uh, or around your city. You, know, you can find all sorts of cultural niches you wouldn't feel comfortable in uh, or don't know much about because you haven't experienced it. Um, you know, we all have a human, I think we humans have a sense of tribalness that we cluster together in our tribes. Um, that said, you know, I'm finding as we're, we continue to move inexorably in this country towards being a non-white majority country, I think that's very exciting. Mm. Um, you know, and maybe it's because I'm a coach, maybe it's because I've, I've learned to be more in a state of inquiry. You know, I do want to learn more. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I do want to find out as best I can as a, you know, as a, a white male to begin to at least have some understanding of what it's like for other people, other genders, uh, other races, because uh, that's the only way we're going to get to understand each other um, is to have those, is to be in relationship with one another at some level. Yeah. But I think it's, you know, it's the flip side of that. The fear of that demographic shift is driving a lot of the polarization in the country. Well, and it's on brand for you because you said earlier, relationship is the most important thing. Right, and that we should all develop more relationships mm -hmm. is your message for the world. Right. What I notice is that we've also all talked about how challenging it is to find new friends, new relationships. Mm -hmm. you know, we, yeah, exactly. we essentially rely on our spouses or our business to create play dates where we go and meet other people, right? But take it to take it to an extreme. I mean, look at my choice pages and my choice to live here. Right. A whole this, lot of white people outside. A whole lot of white people. And Paige and I have talked about this, you know, and we, we love where we live and it's not like we want to move away, but I guess, you know, we're the poster children for privileged white people, you know, living on a gated island and um, yet at the same time, you know, 
we both have had experiences in our lives with people from other races that have been very positive. Um, and we don't hold, you know, we don't hold ourselves to be racist. There's a whole lot of discussion around whether, you know, where there's some unconscious things going on there. And, you know, that's a whole that we could do weeks on that. But um, it's, it's hard to, for us, we made this choice to reach out and to be in relationships with people who are not like us. We have to work really hard at it. Yeah, and do you, most of us just don't. Do you like go out of your way to try and make friends from other cultures or other races or other socioeconomic status? Make friends, no, agree with respect, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's just telling the truth, right? Yeah. Like, you know, we're mostly done. Yeah. I mean, I think my cultural awareness is good, and yet I also know I have my inbred bias. But my, you know, my dad, when I was young, would have executives from other countries live with us for a period of time. They came to Wichita to study Coleman's manufacturing techniques or something. And so we'd have a person from India, then a person from Africa, and a person from China and uh, France. And it's like that impacted me greatly as a kid. And then uh, I, I got into cultural awareness stuff in college and then in my adulthood I became a Rotarian and we had exchange students from different countries and so I was blessed in having contact with who's not here <laughs> I mean here we are five white guys talking about this and it's kind of a useless conversation because um, we're preaching to the choir yeah and, and, and the other races or other cultures that we think about, well, how can we get them more involved in coaching? Or how do we, well, they're not here. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there was a black coaches society for a while trying to, or black coaches association oh, really? hmm. in, out of DC. And, uh, you know, Val Williams, who I see every year, it's say, my sister, my sister, because she got the same name, you know? Um, but I think it kind of fizzled. Huh. I, I've always been concerned that two skill sets and I you know, speak from my own position, but is generalization and rationalization. And I have a tendency to, and I think that's a, maybe a, a challenge for so many others, if we have a bad experience with someone, then I would choose not to spend my time with them. If growing up I've had more bad experiences with any particular group, I may generalize that to the group as a whole. And that's uh, something that I will always struggle with. Uh, you know, just because, you know, just because I disagree with somebody Williams, it doesn't make all Williams bad. Right, right, right. You know? Well, and, what you describe is something that I think is human nature, and I'll let the, the therapist yeah. chime in here in a second, but it's, you know, the, the world is complex, and mm -hmm. we tend to simplify it by saying, well, if I've been bitten by a dog five times, then dogs clearly are bad, yeah. and I'm going to stay yeah. away from them. You know, is that true? No, but that's my experience, yeah. and so that becomes my the filter I see the world through. And that's where we develop an awareness of that. And if we're not aware of that, I think we have more of a tendency that we can do it, just from my own perspective. Right. And so I think that if we have an opportunity uh, through communication and through uh, awareness to put it out there. Mm -hmm. And I think that this country right now is driven by divisiveness. Yeah. 
But that awareness. Just because I like this person doesn't mean I have to dislike this one. Mm -hmm. And we do that. And, and I'll hear that conversation, whether it's among us or, or with any other group, that, well, I, I believe in this, so that's mm -hmm. going to be bad. Well, but we've also got technology making sure that happens. Because if you Google yes. certain things on Facebook, the only things you're going to get are the things you want to read. Yes. That have your point of view and your side Absolutely. and your beliefs. Absolutely. And that's a uh, false dichotomy that is, it is sad that if people don't know about that. Yeah. Then they don't. In fact, I don't even like to say the other side. It's not just the other side. There's like a, 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 a continuum of possibilities. In, in my book, I put a thing one time and I said that we form a belief or an opinion. And once we do, we look for things to prove ourselves. Exactly. Right. The more I look for something, the more I'm going to find it. Mm -hmm. Which, see, that just proves I was right all along. Mm -hmm. Charles Argerus. Do what now? Charles Argerus, I think is his name. Ladder of uh, Inference. Mm. Oh, yeah. I don't know. This, yeah. That was something from my, that just came up for me. Yeah, long time, so I didn't get that from a source, so I was curious. You want to say our cynic? <laughs> I don't think I want to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Okay. I don't, I'm just wondering why. I'm not. I don't, on the race and gender issue and being a coach, is that where we're at? Yeah. I I don't think I have any impact on that or very little impact in changing that. Uh, I I live in a predominantly white area of the country. And you can tell by the colleges and universities. And there's parts of town like maybe you all have you don't want to travel into after a period of eight or nine o'clock. Um, and I don't know how to, uh, if I have any influence, other than say, that's try to open it up for membership, whatever you want to call it. But um, it's it, for right now, it is what it is until there's a bigger group of people who want to make a change. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if you can hear this without judgment or without any make wrong in it. But arguably, we are the ones that would make the change. Just arguably, just for your consideration. Because what, what, what we've essentially said here is, hey, we're comfortable, we've made it, we've worked hard, we've gotten to where we want to get to. And in most of our cases, we live in a certain section of town that has a certain socioeconomic level to it. Most of us live in communities of white people we are white, we hang out with the people that we hang out with, and we don't seem to, and again, please remember, I'm trying to state this without judgment, that we don't seem to go out of our way to address issues of class or gender or racism. And yet arguably, because we're in the capitalism, because we've made, because we've got some socioeconomic and other kinds of power, we would be the ones to do it. So there are some people that would look to us and say, hey, this is your job. But I hear that we don't, at least if I'm picking up what you're laying down, you don't hold it as your job. Well, the presumption is that because I, I, that I know what to do, hell, I don't know what to do without involving conversation in those that aren't here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I went to my uh, 40th reunion of my 
master's program in Georgia last year. I was a speaker at the presentation and they had this stuff all over the hallway about the male gaze. And all the women were talking about their the male gaze and how that is in it is G A C E, not G A Y. Yeah, the, the male look, the way men look at women. And we've all yeah. done that this weekend and I happen to appreciate a, a woman a woman's body or I mean I just you know, I don't it's not like I want to attack them but it's they're all talking about how they uh, it's offensive to them. I'm going, now what do I do? Well, you know, and that's not even black. That's just understanding the females. Like, what what do they really talk about when we're not there? <laughs> well, and I mean this with all respect. Did you ask? Yeah, well, I ask him. I said, so what's this issue, and how are you teaching it? And I asked one of my old professors. Well, more like what you should do. That's the um, question. That I didn't hear you asking. Yeah, no, I didn't ask what I should do because I thought, I don't know that I believe it, but somebody there does. Because there's also a female gaze, you know. Yeah, I, I, I've had the other side. I've seen women look at my crotch when I'm up, in, you know, doing some um, work on a whiteboard in a little room, um, and it did it did feel a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> um, and yet, at the same time, if a woman is showing some good amount of cleavage, I'm not going to look away from that. I'm probably going to look at that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might make her uncomfortable. Uh, a woman told me one time that um, if women don't want to be, and this is a woman speaking, looked at, then don't dress that way. And I, I said, that's too simplistic. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't agree with that. Because yeah. um, uh, when I spent time in Puerto Rico as a bishop over there, total different way of dressing uh, than the stateside. Mm-hmm. When I went to the fitness center in LA, LA Fitness Center, totally different way of dressing <laughs> than at the Kansas Life Fitness Center. That's right. That's right. And there's, yeah, and as the fathers of daughters, some of us have daughters, mm-hmm. um, we've all seen, I mean, my daughter's 12 years old and she dresses for her dance, yeah. you know, and what's both effective and, you know, yeah. sort of the freedom of movement for dance. And yet, as a man who was once a 13 year old boy, you know, I know that that is an attractive way to dress from the perspective of right. the heterosexual male, cisgendered teenager, right? And so you, we're sort of caught because you want your children, male or female, to have the freedom to wear whatever they want to wear and yet not be in a society that then will bring oppression or pressure onto that young lady. What, um, by the way, I still have that at 28 and above. <laughs> really? She's, you're looking at what she's wearing. Yeah, like, so. Oh. How do we get a conversation like that started with parents and young children? Which one? About which conversation? The, about, the, um, about the other sex or about how we look at people, how we talk to people, how we treat the people. You know, I think that we often ask this question at a certain age up here. And I'm thinking the real way to address that is how you bring someone up. I mean, that's in part. So how how do we, what conversations can we get started when children are young so that guys are more aware of these things, that women are more aware of these things as they grow? Now, does that mean it's going to do away with them? 
No, it does not. Well, let's let's go back. I like where you're looking, but do you mind if I if I modify it a little bit? No, absolutely. Let's just look at where you are with you know these days. There's a great fluidity around people's gender and gender-related issues. You and I grew up, and you had a choice. You know, and all you had to do was look down, figure out which, you know, and then the question was answered, right? Mm -hmm. But now people are not feeling their gender. You know, they're not bound by their physical um, equipment. There's gender fluidity and there's transgenderness. How are you with that? Because if we're going to talk about issues of sexuality or gender, right? We gotta start with, hey, what can you live in a world where there's not just a pink and a blue option? Okay. Well, I think I, I shared earlier that um, in my service on the Camp Dudley board, we went through transgender training because we were getting transgender campers. And that was this was some an issue we could not avoid. And the um, Lyndon was the person who led us in this three hour uh, training session, and it turned out he, he was non-binary. That was new one for me. Um, so he had he was born female. Um, he made the decision to come out. Um, he, they, for plural pronouns, and with I guess for you non-binary, you, you know, one or the other, the, the plural makes sense. Um, on the other hand, he had his breasts removed or reduced to a, so they looked maleish. I mean, he presented visually as a male when you first looked at him. But the interesting thing was that his willingness, first of all, his, his, his knowledge about what the, this world is like and being able to explain it to a cisgender white mostly white, upper class, upper class certainly all, almost all upper class or upper middle class at the, at the lowest um, group of people um, went a great deal because he was he knew his stuff and he was able to put the audience at ease. Now we were an easy crowd, um, pretty liberal group of people, generally speaking. And uh, but he his transparency about his experience and uh, allowing us to um, come into that world, if only through his story, was very moving. And at the end of his presentation, um, we were complimenting him on running this great program uh, that we all learned a lot about. Um, and he thanked us and he says, I just want to leave you with, with one story. He said, three weeks ago, I was down in Brooklyn and I gave this exact same presentation to a group of truckers. <laughs> and at the end of the program, they came up to me and said, Linda, love the presentation. Will you please come back? Wow. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, his skill sets were mm. world class. Yeah. But that was to me, it was an example of being open, being in inquiry of looking to say, okay, what's the relationship here? I mean, I went up and talked to him personally one-on-one -on -one between because, you know, like you guys, I do front of the room stuff. I know how hard it is to, to win an audience quickly so that you can get into content. Um, and he did it all seamlessly. Uh, so he was really, really good at what he did. 
but we have to learn those kind of skills and we've got to be reaching out. So which segues me, I want to go, if I can redirect just a little bit back to the, um, what's our responsibility for the coaching community and recruiting people of color, um, of non cisgendered oranges or whatever into the, into the field. Um, yeah, it's hard. Where do you begin? I mean, you know, a committee of one is like, say, it's not going to get very far. On the other hand, and I again go back to my Camp Dudley experience, I was chairman of the nominating committee of the board for a number of years. And we constantly talked about diversity. I mean, you know, you walked on, if you walked on to Camp Dudley in, when I was a camper in the 60s, you would have seen maybe three black kids out of, out of 350. And, um, you know, we've made great strides. The youngest division, the Cubs, the 10-year-olds, uh, this summer, uh, 40% kids of color. Arguably, we've made great strides. Where it really counts, and that's in camperhood, where we have not made great strides is on the board. And we've been held to task for it by one of our board members. You know, the challenge has been that her approach to making this issue something that the board really dealt with was to scream and yell at us and tell us how we had failed her. You know, and she just sucked the oxygen out of the room. There was no discussion. There was no possibility for discussion. The discussion came later. Um, you know, and one of the things that she agreed to do was to serve on the nominating committee this year. They almost had to beg her to go out and find people she knew who were qualified of color to bring them, you know, as possible candidates for the board, which was exactly my experience when I was the chairman was, you know, I, I would talk to our camp director saying, who do you know? Where are the young alums? Where are the kids of color, the kids who came to camp? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, can we tap into them and bring them back uh, and develop them? And, uh, you know, we had spotty success. We still struggle with it. Right. But, but if we map that on the coaching, what do you see? Well, I, I think it's, I think the, I'm not sure that on an individual basis we could do it. I think there's some uniquely positioned organizations. Um, I think ICF or any other kind of group like that, um, and I have no idea whether ICF is doing this, but having those discussions of this discussion, how do we bring in people, non-white people into our profession and how do we reach out to them? I think the schools are in a great place to do it. I don't know what your mix is um, of non-whites and whites, but I think you're in a great place to be doing that. You're developing an alumni base and you want to bring those people back and say, you know, who are you know, who can you recruit? Um, you know, I think there are places like that that are, are great starting places because you've got a critical mass of people and you've got some longevity in terms of access to who's out there. Yeah. I agree that uh, ACTO this year, the conference for the Association of Coach Training Organizations, was all about diversity, really out cutting edge stuff. Robin D'Angelo, who wrote White Fragility, came hmm. and spoke about White Fragility to a group that was largely white. Uh, you attended virtually this year? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so I agree that that's a great spot to impact, right? Because how we make our coach training mm-hmm. available and to whom is probably the future of the, mm-hmm. of the profession. However, I'm not yet ready to abdicate our responsibility as pioneers in the profession, people that created the ICF, people that, you know, 
are experts in everything from emotional and conversational intelligence, right, to, I, I think that we have something to say about it. And it may be as simple as, um, you know, what you were talking about, like, when you go to a place where women say, hey, we don't like the oppressive nature of a male gaze that creates us as sex objects, to actually have the conversation. You know, I'll say that out of ACTO, one of the things that came almost a year later after going to the ACTO conference, no, okay, maybe it was four months, um, is that I spoke to my, I, I teasingly call him my one black friend, but it's not wrong. You know, and I went to him and I said, we have literally never talked about racism in America and your experience and our differences. What do you want me to know? That's and a great way to put it, right? And in my opinion, anyway. Well, and it opened a conversation that we haven't had. And some things that I thought were hilarious and or mildly funny because I thought I was making fun of myself, he's been taking personally for years. Do you know what I mean? It's just a, mm. like a bit that I do that I think is hilarious that's been kind of punching him in the gut for 12 years or mm. something. Wow. Right? And it's like, wow, why the F haven't we talked about it before? So I'm starting to, you could probably hear in my questioning, that I'm more and more holding ourselves responsible for getting the information mm -hmm. and actually having challenging conversations. Because we would mm -hmm. with our clients all day long, right? But when it's us, it's like, oh, I don't Well, it's even weird for me to think about. I mean, I know it's been done. I know the ICF has had a, they had a whole thing on diversity in D.C. a few years ago. It was uh, advanced, they called it. It wasn't the ICF conference. It was the advanced. And I don't. I'm sure people had the conversation, but I didn't. So if I if I went to Val Williams and Andy Turner and other co coaches of color, who am I to say? I mean, it's kind of like, what can I learn? Yeah. But what they say is, there didn't seem to be much interest in our culture to become coaches. <laughs> and, you know, maybe that's just the way it is. We're not keeping them out. Maybe they just don't see why would they want to be a coach. And I've got nothing but respect. Generally, not I mean yes. specifically, not generally, but I've got nothing but respect for you. But I think that everybody we've ever coached or given a complimentary session to has found value, right? Have you ever had somebody who just said, "Ah, this is crap"? Oh yeah, no, I didn't mean it that way. It's just like she said, you know, a lot of the cultures. Um, well, it, it's 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 complex, as, as Doctor Boo says. Um, the conversation just seems funny to have a white person start it. Unless it's like, what do I need to learn? What do I need to know? Yeah. That's good. And I think that's, you know, my point about being an inquiry is doing something about our profession, I think it's gotta be preceded by my heightened awareness about my whiteness, my mm -hmm. privilege, my fragility, whatever language you want to use around that. I can't begin to address those kinds of issues until I address some of these issues, internal mm. issues. <clears throat> Which is why I ordered Robin's book, Rise Good. Tomorrow. Good job. You know, I will say um, I had an interesting experience where I coached a former student. So it was an ILCC student who wanted to get mentor coaching and then we continued for a while for about six months before I realized the student was black because it was all done by phone. I thought, well, that was interesting. Mm -hmm. It never came up. Yeah, and there are cues that we use in our in our culture, right? Uh -huh. it's names or or idioms or speech patterns uh -huh. or something. Mm -hmm.
Thanks for hanging out with the trailblazers of coaching. Who's a coach or leader you know that needs to hear or see these episodes? Share it with one person today. We believe everyone is capable of success and is entitled to living a healthy, powerful, loving, and adventurous life. And we know that becomes even more possible through the power of coaching. We hope you enjoyed this episode, learned something, and you join us again. Maybe one day you will also become a trailblazer of coaching.